now the good fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, my name is Francisco Toro. I'm the director of content for the Group of Fifty. I just wrote an article called "Waiting for the Generals in Persuasion" about the Brazilian election that's pitting Lula, the old left-wing former president, with Jair Bolsonaro, the incumbent far-right, very Trumpy president who has more or less promised to disregard the election result unless he wins. This is an incredibly destabilizing thing in a country like Brazil that has pretty recent memory of generals running the country and where people remember that and not everyone hates it. The country is incredibly polarized now and heading into a second round election on October 30th, which, well, is not actually hard to forecast now. We know what's going to happen. Lula is almost surely going to win narrowly, Lula being the left-wing challenger, and Bolsonaro is not going to accept that, and he's going to turn to the streets, and he's going to turn to the generals, and in the end, what's going to happen is that the generals are going to decide who becomes the next president, either by disregarding the election and following Bolsonaro, or by disregarding Bolsonaro and following the election. But it will be their decision. And so the election is not really going to pick the next president of Brazil, which I find tragic. Francisco Toro's piece, called Waiting for the Generals, was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion, and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is Joshua Coleman. This conversation is a little bit out of our usual wheelhouse, but I think it is really, really interesting. Joshua came to my attention through a number of articles he wrote in The Atlantic about the huge increase in the number of American parents who are estranged from their children. He also has a book called Rules of Estrangement, Why Adult Children Cut Ties and How to Heal the Conflict. We had a really far-ranging conversation trying to understand when estrangement might be positive, why it is often a problem, what drove the rise in the number of people who were estranged from their families, and how all of this relates to broader social dysfunction, to isolation, to a loss of community and other political pathologies. We didn't talk about politics a lot explicitly in this conversation. But of course, one of the things that was on my mind, and I imagine might be on many of your minds, is the way in which the depolarization of our society is also driving many family estrangements. Joshua Coleman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. My pleasure to be here. So you've done some really fascinating research, which at first sight, it doesn't feel like it's of direct political relevance, but I think says a lot about our society and perhaps about our political moment as well. And that is the striking extent to which adult Americans lose touch with their parents or decide to go low contact with their parents or no contact with their parents. How frequent is this? How normal a phenomenon is this? How many adult Americans have very little contact with their parents? Well, the current estimates based on a number of wide-ranging studies shows it's around 10% with mothers and close to 20% with fathers. So it's a fairly significant percent. One large study out of Cornell 
found that some 27% of adult children over the age of 18 have no contact with some family members. So that's not just parents, but it's a fairly significant number. And so that's the extreme case of no contact at all. I seem to remember a statistic you cite about the number of mothers who don't speak to one of their children more than once a month. Yeah, I think one survey of mothers found that something like those mothers who are in the 65 to 75 years old with at least one living adult child found that about 11% were estranged from one child and 62% reported contact less than once a month with at least one child. The research is kind of evolving at this point. So it's hard to get a very precise number, but it's roughly in that camp. What do you think helps to explain this? Is this new? Is this different in the States than it is elsewhere? What's going on here? I think it is relatively new. I think we've always had estrangements. We've always had distant, conflicted relationships with parents and adult children. But I think it's relatively new to think of your parents, in particular family members, cutting off contact with them as an expression of personal growth and identity and a form of protecting your mental health. So today, cutting off a parent can be a marker of existential courage or identity or self-definition, whereas I don't think that that was nearly as true in the past. I think in your book, The Age of Responsibility, you talk about the change from responsibility as a notion of duty to responsibility as accountability. And I think that's where we are with parent-adult-child relationships today, where the adult child feels like, well, if you failed me in your responsibility as a parent in ways that are increasingly hard to define what's a good parent, then I owe you nothing as an adult child. And I think that explains a lot of the estrangements and low contact that aren't explained just by abuse or toxic behavior or that kind of thing. Oh, interesting. So you sometimes hear people say about romantic relationships that one of the problems with an overly romantic conception of partnership is that you sort of start to assume that your partner needs to fulfill you and make you happy and be your soulmate and all of those things. And when they inevitably fail to live up to that, that then leads to relationship instability because you say, well, you know, if you're not fulfilling me every day, then you must be the wrong person. I'll go search for the right person. Is there a sort of odd parental parallel here where sort of people used to think, look, the job of a parent is to provide me with shelter and make sure that I get to 18 safe and, you know, not abuse me in terrible ways. And as long as they've done that, then they've sort of done the job and I owe them something. And now the idea of a parent has to be nurturing and affirming and understanding you in every respect. And when inevitably the parent fails to live up to that, then there's this sort of extreme reaction of you failed me and I don't owe you anything. Would you say there's a sort of parallel there? I'd say it's completely parallel. And it has to do with what the British sociologist Anthony Giddens refers to as the evolution of pure relationships. Giddens writes that as our identities became disembedded from the institutions that had governed family life for millennia, institutions of religion, gender, community, neighborhood, etc., we began to have to develop what he calls pure relationships. And that's the idea that our relationships are purely constituted upon the principles of intimacy. Does this relationship feel good or does it feel bad? Is it advance my feelings of identity and well-being or does it inhibit that? And so that's not only true in romantic relationships, but that's come to evolve and define parent-adult-child relationships so that today nothing guarantees a relationship between a parent and adult child beyond whether or not that adult child wants that relationship. And on the one hand, that can make the parent-adult-child relationship 
relationship good or strong because parents are working much harder than they ever have to have a good relationship. On the other hand, it makes it much more fragile because if the adult child feels like the parent's behavior isn't in line with their ideals for happiness and mental health, then they're much less likely to see this parent or spend time with them. And how does that relate to a concept which seems in the sort of general ballpark, but I'm not quite sure what the connection might or might not be of a sort of therapeutic culture and the role that perhaps psychotherapy plays or that popular notions of therapy play in how Americans live today? Today's therapists are really the high priests that make these decisions about who to have or not have in your life. And the definition of what's considered healthy has also radically changed. So in earlier generations, say pre-1960, the role of a therapist was probably to help the adult child have stronger family values, et cetera, to be more in line with ideals around duty as a form of responsibility. And today, the notion of duty, of obligation, of even caretaking, guilt, shame, those are all considered to be potentially problematic obstacles on the path to self-discovery. So from my perspective, there's been a shift in the moral framework away from honor thy mother and thy father, respect thy elders, which you sort of owe to older generations, to a much more personal psychological perspective of health. So the other moral framework that's been replaced is this idea of, I have to only have relationships that are protective of my mental health. And that's a very strong thing that I hear a lot from adult children. Well, I can't have you around me or my children because it's not good for my mental health. Now, on the one hand, fair enough, right? Nobody wants anybody in their life that's problematic to their mental health. But the idea of what causes mental illness is also highly problematic because we still live in a culture that's very captured by this much more psychoanalytic, psychodynamic definition of adult outcomes, where we assume that if you arrive into adulthood and you have significant anxiety or depression or low self-esteem or lack of confidence, that it can all be dialed back to hidden traumas or prior traumas or family relationships. There is a saying by the Israeli sociologist Eva Elouz that I think is very useful here. Elouz says, today our lives are implied backwards. What's a dysfunctional family? It's a family where your needs weren't met. How do you know that your needs weren't met? By looking at your present condition. So the idea is if you have problems, you assume that it has to do with your parents, which sure, sometimes it does, but it's also random good luck, random bad luck, genetics, cohort, siblings, other important relationships. So all of these things have put enormous pressure on the parent-adult-child relationship in ways that I think are very problematic. That's fascinating. So it's nearly the guilt is assumed, right? If I'm unhappy, it must be because of some childhood trauma or something was lacking in my childhood. And so therefore the parents must be responsible for it. I mean, the paradox of this seems to be that probably one of the best predictors of good outcomes in mental health, and I'm guessing here, I haven't done research, but you'll correct me if that's wrong, is having strong social relationships, right? I assume that one of the things that helps to preserve good mental health is to have a set of lifelong stable loving relationships that give you support when you need it and that give you a sense of purpose and a sense of belonging. And of course, it sounds as though a lot of people, when they're in a moment of conflict with their parents, say, this is stressing me out, this is bad for my mental health, let's cut those relationships off. 
it's a hypothesis I'm formulating, but I don't think it's a particularly outrageous one to say, in fact, if that's your operating principle, it's going to have a really negative impact on your mental health. Absolutely. You know, we have an enormous problem in this country of social isolation, loneliness, depression, and high rates of mental illness. And it's in part because we are increasingly atomized. We are cutting off not only friends, but family members and parents. And a lot of the parents in my practice are really willing to quote, do the work, meaning they're willing to go to therapy, they're willing to make amends for their mistakes. And the adult children are saying, no, since you failed me, I owe you nothing. And I think it's a very problematic way to run a society. One thing that really struck me when I read Andrew Sullivan's article in New York Magazine on the opioid crisis a few years ago was the basic observation he made that the 80s and 90s were associated with uppers. They were associated with party drugs and things you take to be able to dance all night, things you take to feel euphoric. And obviously those were dangerous drugs that had many negative social effects as well. But opioids are downers, right? They're the thing you take to veg out in front of a TV and not feel depressed, not feel pain for 12 hours. And that's a really interesting indication of where our society is at, even relative to a few decades ago. You know, how deep do you think this problem of social isolation now goes in the United States? And is that connected to the broader sense of malaise and anger that we have in the country at the moment? Yeah, I think that we become increasingly atomized our definitions of what constitutes a good relationship makes us very fragile. The notion of boundaries, however useful they are, we're constantly evaluating whether a relationship is good for us or bad for us. That puts enormous pressure and stress on the self. It also creates a lot of anxiety. So everybody's sort of looking for their tribe, but tribes can be very fragile and they aren't necessarily able to provide the kind of corrective feedback that we all need that we're more used to getting from family and closest friends. Now, this isn't to idealize family, because I think to your point, families can be very hurtful and disruptive and traumas are a real thing and can occur in families. It's just what is considered to be traumatic, harmful, abusive, or neglectful behavior today has radically changed. There was an important article by the Australian psychologist Nick Haslam, who talked about how in the past three decades, there's been an increasing, he calls it concept creep, in terms of what we define as being harmful, abusive, neglectful behavior. And on the one hand, that's great. That provides us a way to talk in a much more detailed way about the way that we feel injured or hurt or misunderstood by others. On the other hand, it pathologizes fairly normal slings and arrows of family life. And it presents a kind of a idealization of the possibilities of parenthood in ways that don't really exist and aren't very realistic. That's very interesting. You know, I spent some time looking at forums on Reddit because I find them fascinating. You know, things like MIV asshole and to some extent relationships and so on. And I think actually they are often beautiful repositories of both advice and sensible moral judgment. I think it really actually increases your faith in humanity that most upvoted responses are sensible and humane. But if there's one tendency on those forums that I really noticed that gives me pause it is to pathologize everything, right? Like everything that is sort of it falls short of ideal behavior isn't just, well, this was bad, this person shouldn't be doing this, or, you know, they were having an off day. It is, this is a red flag of all of these sort of deep forms of harm that are going to come your way, cut off a relationship now. And it's a really persistent part 
of that sort of form of therapeutic popular culture. Absolutely. That's right. Every day there's some article about 10 signs that you're with a narcissist, how to deal with a narcissist, why you should go no contact with your parent. Here are the five signs. And these things give a kind of a legitimacy or authority to cutting off people for reasons that in other generations would have been considered maybe obnoxious, maybe irritating, maybe burdensome. But the idea that you should just be constantly winnowing out problematic relationships because they are upsetting to you is very problematic. And we're constantly confusing conflict with abuse. So many things today get called abusive, which are just conflictual. And the difference between conflict and abuse is that if you conceptualize something as conflictual, then there is a remedy for it. And we can sort of assume that there's a pathway. But if you consider it as just abuse or narcissism or borderline B personality disorder or any of those things, you've essentially dehumanized the other. And you've also limited and restricted the possibility that the relationship can be healed or dealt with. Do you have any examples from your practice that you're able to share publicly of the kinds of things where people break the relationships of the parents up over and sort of what consequences it has? Sure. I mean, there's a number of different pathways to estrangement. I think commonly one of the reasons that parents don't talk about their estrangement is that they assume that other people are going to say, well, you must have done something pretty terrible for your adult child to cut off contact with you. I mean, people don't do it for no reason. And as we've discussed, in some cases, that's true. There's physical abuse, sexual abuse, abject neglect, real emotional abuse versus what sometimes gets called emotional abuse. But that's one pathway. It's not the only. A very common pathway is that the adult child gets married to somebody who's troubled or says, you know, choose me or your parents. You can't have both. Certainly the parent's mental illness, but also the adult child's mental illness. And the adult child's mental illness doesn't necessarily stem from parental cause. It may just be the genetics of the child that become expressed at a later point in life. And paradoxically or ironically, a certain percentage of adult children cut off contact because they don't know any other way to feel separate from the parent. One of the downsides of this very close, conscientious, anxious parenting that we've been doing over the past three or four decades is that sometimes our children get too much of us and they don't know any other way to feel separate from us than to completely cut off contact. Yeah, that's a kind of yin and yang effect. Or I don't know exactly the right term, but this is something that I see often in areas of social life as well, countries that go too far down one path politically, and actually it has the effect of swinging exactly the other way politically. You see this in all kinds of contexts. And so it's very plausible to me that, you know, an extreme form of helicopter parenting makes the child feel so constrained. And if they don't know how to fight for their space, then the only way they might have to do it is to say, I'm cutting you off completely. If parents of young children are listening to this, what advice do you give them for what to do over you know, the next, whatever it is, 15, 18, 20 years that the kid is in their home to minimize the likelihood that they have this adverse outcome or to put it more positively to maximize the chances that they have you know, a meaningful relationship with their adult children in the future? I think that for those parents who are able to become much more psychological, to see that as their child becomes an adult, their capacity to influence them is significantly reduced. That in the same way that research shows that long-term romantic relationships have friendship as their core, that principle can be true of our adult children as well. Now, it's problematic when you're raising young children because you don't necessarily 
just want to be your child's friend. You have to have your own sense of authority and autonomy and ability to set limits. And I think many parents are very confused about what's an abusive set of limits versus a reasonable set of limits. But in general, holding true to the idea that the ground has shifted and you can't guilt trip your children into a relationship with you, particularly when they become adults. It has to be in line with their ideals, which may be to spend less time with you or be more separate from you or the like. I mean, the good news about all of this, speaking of the pendulum swing, is that the majority of parents today express feeling closer to their adult children than they believe that their parents felt to them. And many parents have really close confiding relationships with their adult children. So there's a good news, bad news. That is the good news, that the way that parents have become much more psychological and invested and conscientious and educated about child rearing, it has in large part, produced a much better parent-adult-child relationship. The downside is that the adult child now has much more power to set the terms of the relationship when they're grown, and that makes the parent's authority much more diminished in ways which isn't necessarily good for either party. And so what advice would you give to people of, let's say, you know, early adults, late teenagers, or, or even just kids who are 30 or 40, who feel their kids pulling away? You know, what is the best way to preserve the relationship or to hope to improve the relationship under those kinds of circumstances? But what are the top mistakes that you see parents making in that situation? Well, one of the things that I talk a lot about with parents, particularly if they're estranged or on the path to estrangement, is to really empathize with what the child is saying or doing, that assume that your child has good reasons for their behavior. So if a child has cut off contact, I commonly advise parents to say something like, I know that you wouldn't do this unless it was the healthiest thing for you to do. From the parent's perspective, it isn't the healthiest thing for them to do. But from the adult child's perspective, it is. So the parent has to form some kind of an alliance with what the child is doing and why they feel like they need to do it. Part and parcel of that is making amends for the mistake that the parent has made. Even highly conscientious, educated, caring, loving parents could still, in many ways, have made mistakes that were problematic for their adult child, that the adult child felt when they were younger were hurtful or problematic or disruptive to them. So helping parents to take responsibility, to make amends, to not be defensive, to not explain away the behavior, I find that to be the most powerful behavior that a parent can do towards reconciliation. Do you see any kind of patterns in what types of families, in really the broadest sense, whether that is by income, by education, by political ideology, by geography, by culture of origin, end up with those estrangements and what kind of families sustain closer relationships over time? I mean, in terms of my research, it's primarily Euro-Americans, white, middle-class families and above. I very rarely see Latino families. I very rarely see African-American families. I'm seeing more Asian families, but I'd still say that they're fairly rare. We don't have great international statistics about estrangement, but I would argue that in countries in general that have preserved a sense of filial obligation, you're going to see less of that. And similarly, in, in those cultures in the United States. So that's sort of broadly what I'm seeing. Politically, that's becoming increasingly a cause of estrangement. I read one study that said that something like one third of families have become estranged over political 
differences. And that's in part because politics have become such a powerful defining factor of identity in terms of, you know, who is my tribe and who isn't my tribe. And that now extends to families. That's also relatively new. 20 years ago, people weren't getting estranged or even having that much conflict about political differences, whereas today they do. So I have a kind of test of one of your assumptions here, and you can tell me whether it's a good test or not. It just came up with it. So it may well be wrong, which is if you're saying that something like a therapeutic culture is one of the causes of people being overly quick on the trigger towards estrangement, I would assume for that itself may be wrong, that this kind of therapeutic culture is deepest in, you know, metropolitan affluent America. And metropolitan affluent America, of course, is also more liberal progressive. So wouldn't you expect some kind of ideological differences where people who self-define as being on the left or the far left of the political spectrum would be more likely to undergo these kinds of estrangements? And if that's not the case, doesn't that somewhat undercut the therapeutic hypothesis? It's an interesting question. Politically, it seems fairly distributed. It may be more a matter of class than politics. So I certainly have plenty of conservatives in my practice who are being estranged by their children who are also conservatives. So so class to me is a bigger definition of that than politics per se. And the therapeutic, I think, is an outgrowth of individualism. And there are different types of individualism. So for example, the sociologist Amy Shallot talks about um, contrasted American individualism versus Dutch individualism in her book, Not Under My Roof. And what she found was that American individualism, she describes as adversarial individualism, which is this concept that you become an adult in an adversarial role with your parents. And it's not under my roof because in Dutch societies, they're much more likely to drink with their adolescent children or allow them to have an overnight with their boyfriends or girlfriends, you know, starting at the age of 16 or 17, whereas in the United States, States, it's not under my roof. So I think in some ways it's more defined by the kind of individualism per se uh, in the political spectrum. But I could be wrong. We don't have great, great statistics yet on that. That's really interesting. For me, one of the most striking cultural differences between Europe and the United States, some of the most striking differences are exactly the two things you mentioned, both the very different attitude towards drinking with your children. And what I find really striking in my friends in the United States, you know, most of whom are pretty far left and not religious and, and not very moralistic. And they actually don't think there's anything wrong with teenagers having sex, but they really think there would be something absolutely immoral about them allowing to have their own children to have sex under their own roof. And this is true of people who really actually, in other respects, bristle at any imposition of collective morality. Right. <laughs> um, so it's a very interesting thing about the United States. What about the role of geography in this. So on the one hand, you could imagine that, you know, Americans are still somewhat more mobile than people in other countries. So American mobility is actually reduced over the last decades. But you could imagine that, you know, well, you know, it's much more easy to become estranged from your children if they're really far away. And so perhaps the fact that Americans move so much helps to explain this. On the other hand, I suppose you could think, well, if you're living next door, it's much easier to always be in each other's face and to get on each other's nerves and to eventually say, look, I, you know, don't come around here. I don't want to be speaking to you. Whereas if you're far away, perhaps it's easier to manage a relationship. So if you have any sense of how mobility and the greater likelihood, especially as people ascend the educational ladder and are more, more affluent, also more likely to move away for college and jobs and so on, how does that play into this? 
Yeah, I suspect that it does, that in being further away, you need to form other forms of support. Your family becomes less important. The differences may become more important as a result of that. Other people may assume a far more central role in your life. You don't have to face the family as much at family gatherings and the like, so that may also make it easier. So I suspect that the mobility and the geographic availability of different places to live in the U.S. It would be a factor. And you think that it would increase the number of estrangements? I suspect. Yeah, I suspect that it could. Oh, that's interesting. So there's kind of two different ways of thinking about how harmful this is, right? Obviously, for most parents, I'm sure that this is a hard reality. But how worried we should be about it from a social perspective depends in part on how good people are at replacing those relationships with other meaningful relationships, right? I mean, at the time of the gay rights struggle when, you know, it was still much more common than it is today for parents to reject their children because they're gay or lesbian. We had this idea of found family, right? That if your own parents reject you on the basis of your sexuality, then you go and make your own family, right? And often you did have these close-knit and vibrant communities, which were pretty good at replacing something that can't ever fully be replaced, but at giving a sense of belonging and mutual care and mutual obligation. I also find for in the United States, the model of friendship tends to be much thinner than in other countries. So in Europe, especially in Southern Europe, part of friendship is mutual obligation. This is something I think about a lot. So when I have even a relatively fleeting friend in Europe, or even when I've met somebody who's a friend of a friend's, I wouldn't hesitate, this doesn't happen very often, but I wouldn't hesitate if I woke up at 2 a.m. and really needed somebody to go to the pharmacy for me to ring them up and say, hey, I'm really sorry, but can you go to the pharmacy for me? Because part of a standard model of friendship is mutual obligation. Everybody understands this. In the United States, it seems to me that friendship is actually much more modular in such a way that it's sort of, hey, do you feel like hanging out? You know, we like each other. We have fun when we hang out. You know, let's do it. But if it's a little bit inconvenient to me, I don't feel at all bad to say no, because obligation is not part of a standard model of friendship in the same way in the United States. So all of that is a long wind up to say, It's not clear to me that it's easy in the United States for people who lose those parent-child relationships to replace them with other kinds of relationships that also have mutual obligation, that also have mutual care, that also provide community in the same kind of way. And perhaps in certain communities, that's easier. But I imagine for most people, that isn't there. So do you have any sense either from your practice or from studies about how good people are at finding self-chosen families that actually replace that space of meaning and assistance and emotional care? No, I think you're raising a really interesting point. I didn't know that about European friendships, but that makes sense to me. And I think this gets back to Anthony Giddens' notion of pure relationships, that, that if relationships are purely constituted on the basis of whether it feels good and is in line with my ideals of my own, you know, ideals of autonomy or identity or happiness, I think that makes relationships much more fragile and much more easily disrupted. I don't think we have a very strong um ideal in this country about our obligations to other, our duties to other. And I think that that does extend to friendships. And so I think we more easily feel disrupted or burdened or the like. And, you know, we're very preoccupied in this country with with boundaries and codependency and the like. And I think that's all part and parcel of that whole dynamic. And I think that one of the things that we lose in getting rid of the compass that guides us towards 
more duty and obligation is there is a lot of meaning that comes from that, even if it is burdensome or annoying or irritating to wake up at two in the morning for a friend or to visit your aging parents or to put aside your gripes about them. We're very oriented towards the happiness of the adult child who's estranging. We're not as oriented towards the absolute immiseration of these parents. I mean, every day I'm working with sobbing fathers, mostly mothers or fathers or grandparents who are loving, dedicated grandparents, even by the child's own reckoning. But because the child now has problems with the parent, even though they're fine with the grandparenting, they're cutting off the child from contact with the grandchildren. So that's a loss, not only to the grandparent, but to the grandchildren as well. So I think we're becoming you know, more and more atomized, weakening relationships that can be useful for everybody. I suppose our usual model of what happens is that the parents want and seek this close contact with their children. And so you're invoking the weeping parents in your practice who are very sad that they've lost this contact with their children. How often does it happen the other way around? Is that sort of in extreme cases in which the child is a drug addict and sort of steals from the parents and eventually they cut the child off? Or do you also see an entry of this kind of therapeutic culture where the parents say, you know what, our child always has a problem with us and always pushes us in ways we don't like, and now we're going to decide to end this relationship? Is that something that you see rising or is that really a very rare outlier? I think it's an outlier. And I think the research shows that the majority of the time, if there's an estrangement, it's the adult child who does it. But I do see adult children who want the relationship with the parent and the parent won't have the relationship with the child. Now, sometimes that's for religious reasons. Sometimes it's because the parents don't approve of the child's gender identity or sexuality or who they're marrying or their career choices or other problems such as mental illness or drug abuse, etc. It's far less common because it's what sociologists refer to as the intergenerational state. Parents are much more motivated to see the relationship as being better than the adult child sees it. And they're much more wounded when the relationship isn't going well because their identity is much more defined by being a good mother or good father than the adult child's might be in terms of defining themselves as a good son or daughter. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. You're mentioning earlier, and you alluded to this in this answer, that one of the drivers of this is the spouse of a child. No, you know, of course, sometimes the spouse of a child may be the person who helps them realize that their parents really are toxic and abusive, right? So there can be a positive element to that again as well. I think going back to the beginning of our conversation, I'm not trying to imply that estrangement is always a bad thing and that there's a small percentage of cases where people really are terrible human beings, it may be a positive thing. But also, of course, a lot of the time, it can be the spouse of a child who is the toxic person, who is jealous of a relationship that their spouse might have with their parents and so on. And it strikes me, I'm not a parent, that that must be the scariest thing about being a parent. I mean, obviously, it's, you know, some kind of physical injury to a child, it's some form of mental illness, etc. But the thing you have, you know, it's perhaps becoming a drug addict and so on. But the thing that you know your child is very likely to do, that you have the least control over is choose their spouse. That's right. <laughs> is that just a complete crapshoot? I mean, do parents have any kind of agency in empowering their children to make better choices? Or is this something where you just, you know, you're going to draw the lottery and you have to hope that it turns out positive? 
I think it's more the latter that you have to accept that you don't have very much control over who your child chooses. And a lot of estrangements happen as a result of the parent voting against that potential boyfriend or girlfriend early on and being critical of them or worried about them. And that becomes problematic because that becomes sort of interwoven with the child's own desires to be autonomous and to say, well, this is my life. I get to choose who I want to choose and love who I want to love. I mean, you can't tell me who to love. And even worse than many of them go on to tell their spouse or spouse-to-be about the parent's critical comments, and that often becomes an unforgivable place to, to heal from. So I strongly encourage parents to be very circumspect and not to say anything critical about somebody's potential spouse, and to be very cautious, even if it's just somebody that they're dating, to know that that can have you know very problematic consequences later down the line. So, you know, undoubtedly, there's many people, given the numbers, who are listening to this podcast who are estranged from their parents, who are considering becoming estranged from their parents, or perhaps, you know, parents who feel that they would like to have much closer contact with their children than they do. So perhaps let's start with the advice for the parent. Yeah, the advice for the parent is to find the kernel of truth, if not the bushel of truth, in your child's complaints, to show empathy and compassion, to assume if they're complaining about you, that there may be good reasons for that that you don't understand, to be committed to understanding, to take responsibility for the mistakes that you made, to adhere to the principle of separate realities, which means that you could objectively done a good, dedicated job as a parent and your child could still feel like you didn't do things that they really needed or wanted you to do. I think those are really the most important principles towards healing a a fractured relationship with an adult child. And so now the advice you would give, first of all, to children who either are estranged or are thinking about reducing the amount of contact they have with their parents, what considerations do you think they should put into their course of action? How should they assess whether or not seeking that kind of estrangement is the right course of action for them? I think the issue is really, have you done your due diligence? As with you, I don't think that all estrangements are bad. I think that some parents are so unrepentant or critical or negative or hostile that the adult child in these cases does have to choose their own mental health over the relationship with the parent. But I think it's important for the adult child to do due diligence, to give the parent the opportunity to heal the relationship, to do family therapy, and to approach the complaints that they have to the parent and about the parent in a way that makes it possible for the parent to hear and respond. You're not going to get a great response from your parent if you enter it saying that they're toxic or narcissistic or they have a borderline personality disorder. You're just going to shut down the conversation in ways that you may not really want it to be shut down. It's far better to start with what you like or appreciate about the parent. Also to be mindful that parents really do do the best that they can, even if that best is terrible. So if your parent did fail you in important ways, it's probably because of their own childhood traumas or their own genetics or their own life circumstances or who they were married to. And so to have a certain degree of compassion 
for that. That doesn't mean that you have to accept whatever they say in terms of the terms of relationship, but to begin there and to provide a framework where the relationship can be healed and moved forward. And so as a last question, if you are estranged from your parent or you have very low contact and you're convinced by some of the things you've said over the course of this conversation and you think, hey, how can I build on the contact? How do you do that in a way that's sustainable? How do you do that in a way where you don't invite the parent to rush back into your life and overwhelm you and then you feel the need to put up these very extreme boundaries? Again, what's a sustainable way of starting to rebuild that relationship? Yeah, when I work with parents and adult child in reconciliation therapy, that's very much the model. I tell parents they have to defer to the adult child's pacing in terms of frequency of contact and the quality of the contact, which may mean that the parent has to not say anything remotely critical or give advice about parenting or anything about the daughter-in-law or her son-in-law. And I think that it's reasonable for the adult child to say that they want to be in control over the pacing of that if the parent wants a relationship with the adult child. And I think it's a deal that the parent should gladly accept that if the adult child saying, I'm open to reestablishing contact with you, but these are the terms. I always tell parents to take that deal because it's the only way to begin the process of healing. What about the kids? What boundaries do you think it makes sense for the kids to put up? And what boundaries do you think are so stifling of the relationship that it's actually wrong? I mean, should you basically, if you're at the moment, if you're no or very low contact, just stipulate whatever set of boundaries you want, if that's what's going to motivate you to give this a try? Or would you say, no, these kinds of boundaries are healthy, those kinds of boundaries actually are counterproductive? I mean, in general, I support the adult child's boundaries, almost whatever they are. It becomes problematic when the adult child wants the parents to make amends for things that the parents strongly believes never occurred. So that's often the more problematic territory. So I think if the adult child is considering reconciliation, then it's good to give the parent things that they can actually respond to and find some degree of a sort of a shared reality. Now, that doesn't mean that the adult child has to accept the parent's version of their childhood. They can still believe what they believe and maintain that the parent is denying things that occurred. But if the adult child is open to having a reconciliation, then I think that they do get to set the terms, even if the parent feels that those are very limiting. I said the last question was the last one, but I have a last, last question. So if we've seen this trend towards more estrangements over time, do you think that those trends are going to continue and accelerate? Or is there any hope for a change in the culture where we might see a re-establishment of family bonds and the strengthening of these lifelong relationships? I wish I could say that it was trending in that direction from what I see, but to me, it seems like we're getting more and more atomized, more and more anxious, more and more agitated, and those things tend to breed more conflict in families and more division. So I wish I could end on a really hopeful note about this, but if I were to predict a trend, I would predict a continuation of a trend in this direction. Although maybe the fact that, you know, you're having podcasts like this and there's more information out there about how to reconcile and, you know, many of the things that cause estrangement are fixable. So I think perhaps as that becomes much more part of the popular culture and awareness, that should slow down the trend. 
Well, I thought that uh, branching out from strictly political topics might make for a more inspiring conversation, but clearly I chose the wrong conversation for that, but it certainly taught me a lot and was incredibly informative. Joshua Coleman, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like them, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Oh,